Welcome to the CEC report for the 31st of March 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show, free marketers abandon their failing ideology and Anglo-Saudi terrorist apparatus behind Westminster attacks. So firstly, free marketers abandon their failing ideology. Now, a couple of weeks ago on the show, Craig, we had a whole discussion about the wave, or at least a beginning of a wave of change taking place within Australian politics, which is mirroring similar changes overseas, um, where there'd been talk that week of a people's bank, a community housing bank, Glass-Steagall was um, brought up as a possibility by the Labor Party, the South Australian government was talking about controlling, public control of the electricity market, and the Prime Minister, mm -hmm. Mr Turnbull, talked about building another phase of the Snowy Project, meaning government-directed and funded infrastructure. So this was, you know, the sign of a major shift. And of course, it's just the beginning of a huge political backlash against privatisation and deregulation. This week was historic in a bad sense because Hazelwood, the power station here in Victoria, has been shut down. And I think, you know, that's going to see an even greater uh, wave of backlash. Um, but think of, you know, the dairy industry, steel plant closures, auto closures. You know, this is a real crisis for Australia's economy and people are reacting to it very seriously. So this week there are more political leaders that are actually responding to that in a genuine way. Firstly, Sally McManus, the boss of the ACTU, told the National Press Club on the 29th of March that neoliberalism has run its course. And she used privatisation as an example as a neoliberal experiment that led instead to increased prices, cuts to workers' conditions and job losses. And she said, look, the Keating years created vast wealth for Australia, but that has not been shared and too much has ended up in offshore bank accounts or in the CEO's back pockets. Working people are now missing out and this is making them angry. And uh, Fairfax Media went to Paul Keating for a comment on this, um, probably thinking he would defend, you know, what he created as the architect of the 1983 consensus of ushering in deregulation, free trade, mm. fixed ex uh, floating exchange rates and so forth. But instead, Keating said that since 2008, liberal economics has gone nowhere. And to the extent that Sally McManus is saying this, she is right. We have a comatose world economy held together by debt and central bank money. Liberal economics, he said, has run into a dead end and has had no answer to the contemporary malaise. He obviously wants to try and leave some sort of his legacy behind. Mm. But look, Elisa, what we're talking about here is an ideological battle that's now breaking out. You know, we've talked about, uh, maybe for not the Fox TV uh, Aurora viewers, but we have talked on the program before, uh, about the fact that for the last 40 years, Australia's been taken over by this neoliberal operation. And we've, we specifically wrote about this in 1997 through the naming of a Mont, what's called the Montpelerin Society, it, which is based in England. It's a fascist organisation that sets out to destroy government, destroy unions, legalise drugs and all sorts of different things. And what it's done, what it did in the 70s, it fostered all these think tanks around the world. And down here in Australia, you've got you know these right-wing think tanks, the Institute for Public Affairs, the, uh, the H.R. Nichols Society, Centre for Independent Studies, uh, Tasman Institute, and I could go on and on, that, that, that foster these policies of economic rationalism, of mm. free trade, privatisation. And Paul Keating came in about, you know, about maybe 
seven or eight years after this entire process started in the 70s, and he just rode, rode the wave of privatisations, pushing this agenda that somehow the benefits from private boardrooms and private shareholders are more important than the general welfare of the population of which the governments are supposed to represent. So what you've seen is the, 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 the privatising of national assets, of public infrastructure, and you've seen rising prices. You see in the media today a breakout in the discussion about electricity prices, the idea of price gouging. Hmm. Right. This, the, the argument from these neoliberal types is that government is inefficient. Government can't provide uh, services at a cheap, as cheap as the public as a private sector, which is an absolute load of rubbish because as soon as you peel back the, the layers of the onion of the privatisation model, you find all these exorbitant charges and fees and requirements in order to make a profit yeah. that are sponsored by the government. In exactly. fact, you know, things like CityLink are underwritten by the government. The profits are underwritten by the government. So if CityLink doesn't make a profit, then the government has to step in and fund that profit. And this is the model. Mm. So the people are being taxed indirectly from assets that used to be or should have been in public ownership by a model that is now falling apart. Mm. So yeah. this is a very interesting state of affairs. Donald Trump is spot on the mark with this, what is going on. Uh, when he's talking about you know, return to American system policies, which I think we'll talk about in the next segment. But this is what we're starting to see across the board. Mm. You know, Jeremy Corbyn in the, United, in the United Kingdom represents these sorts of policies. And it's going to be interesting to see what takes place in Europe in the next period, the next couple of months, because you're seeing the sh same shifts. And more elections Europe. coming up too. And more too. elections, yeah. Um, and one other figure, speaking of Donald Trump, who's come out, and he's an Australian in the last week, um, against the neoliberal system is Andrew Laveris. He's um, uh, the Australian-born head of Dow Chemical, but he's the head of a business leaders group that's advising Donald Trump on reviving manufacturing. And he said, market-based economies were leading us to conclusions that were short-term oriented and part of the money society that was leaving people behind. He said, I think that is the bubble that just burst. And he referred to the money economy creating an elite class of a very, very 1% class, he called it. And he said, um, we are seeing it in growing opposition to a paradigm where the rich get richer and the middle class tumbles down into poverty, where people find themselves suddenly unable to afford a basic standard of living and worry that their kids will not have what they had. Um, so this is, he's giving some good advice to Trump and we'll stop briefly and we'll come back and we'll talk about what Trump did as well, which is quite historic in the last week. Welcome back to the CEC Report where we're talking about how the free market ideology is failing and that's good news. And look, we want to talk a bit about the alternative to the free market ideology um, the neoliberal economic system, which is known as the American system. And the reason for that is that it was created by the Americans when they broke from being a colony of the British Empire. And one of the big issues was that the British had banned them from any manufacturing. So they were prohibited, for example, from building mills to split and roll iron. They had to export the pig iron to England duty-free where it was manufactured and sent back as final products to the United States. So it sounds very familiar to today. Uh, and of course they were warned that any development of their own industry would interfere with that perfect model of trade that had been established by the British system. 
Um, so I'm going to show a clip here which actually shows how free trade worked from those origins, how it worked historically, but of course it's the same model of today, as today. Mm. And it starts out with um, discussing that the American colonies were fighting for their independence, but of course they kept running into these British operations um, to, to shut them down, including even when the uh, White House was famously burned down by the British in 1812. As the United States defeated these various attacks, Shelburne's successor and protege, Lord Palmerston, turned to the British slave system in the southern U.S. as the new axe to chop apart the United States. The slavery system, destroying the southern United States, was a critical part of a worldwide British economic system to which Adam Smith gave the name Free Trade. Beginning in West Africa, the British East India Company, Royal Africa Company, and others captured slaves. These slaves were shipped to the Western Hemisphere to create the slave plantation system of the southern United States. The principal product of this system in the 19th century was cotton, 75% of which was exported to England. Here, English peasants worked for shillings to turn the cotton into low-quality textiles, which were then sold in India, the crown jewel of the empire. The Indian subjects, denied the right by the British to produce for themselves, paid for the textiles with opium crops. The Indian opium was then shipped from India to China, where it was forced on the Chinese people for enormous profit, addicting millions to the life-sucking drug. The profits from this cycle, characterized by East India Company lackey Adam Smith as buying cheap and selling dear, was the foundation of the empire's existence. An interruption of any one part was an interruption to the whole. And that was, of course, when the British uh, waged the so-called opium wars against China because China had tried to prevent the importation of uh, opium. And the British said, well, you can't do that. That's a breach of free trade. So again today, we have people willing to challenge that and say, no, this system is not working. And so President Trump raised this in a speech in Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, on the 20th of March. Uh, and he explicitly referred to the American system. And Craig, he is mm. the first American president to refer to the American system of economics in you know, distinct um, opposition to the British system for more than a century. So this, this is a big deal. So we'll watch what he had to say. Our first... Republican President Abraham Lincoln was born right here in Kentucky. That's not bad. The legendary pioneer Daniel Boone helped settle the Kentucky frontier. And the great 19th century American statesman, Henry Clay, represented Kentucky in the United States Congress. Henry Clay believed in what he called the American system and proposed tariffs to protect American industry and finance American infrastructure for American manufacturing. He wanted it badly. He said very strongly, free trade, which would throw wide open our ports to foreign production without duties, while theirs remain closed to
to us. That was his quote. He knew all the way back, early 1800s. Clay said that trade must be fair, equal, and reciprocal. Boom. He said fair, equal, and reciprocal. I'm talking about reciprocal trade. In explaining his American system, Clay argued that the sole object of the tariff is to tax the produce, and remember, to tax the produce of foreign industry with the view of promoting American industry. For too long, our government has abandoned the American system. So, Elisa, it's pretty important what uh, Donald Trump's doing here is because if you think about Australia, for the last 40 years, all you've heard about is free trade, free trade, free trade. And, you know, those fanatical people that support free trade are very vicious when you start to talk about tariffs. But this, the fact that it's taken, it's been 100 years since it's even been raised shows you how uh, sensitive this is. You know, 40 years ago, we had the Mont Pelerin come down, Mont Pelerin Society come down through its think tanks here in Australia and spawned nothing but free trade. There's not one institution in this country other than the CEC that talks about, on a regular basis, this whole system of American system of political economy. And we had examples of it here in Australia with the Commonwealth Bank, exactly. created by King O'Malley, who actually referenced that American system, and he was an American. The early Labor Party leaders understood the principle of, the of working for the common good. They understood implicitly the, the American system and adopted it in Australian terms. Mm. So, you know, we're going back to that system because people are being destroyed by the system of free trade. That's always happened everywhere it's been introduced. Mm. Now we're, we're going to show another clip of Trump and this is not because we're big fans of Trump or something, but he's coming under attack because of these things he's saying. And this, this next video was completely blacked out of virtually all the media apart from a few space-oriented websites and the like. Um, so this was a, a four-minute speech that he gave. Uh, an address to the nation, actually, when he reauthorised the funding for the NASA budget. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for Fellow Americans, this week, in the company of astronauts, I was honored to sign the NASA Transition Authorization Act right into law. With this legislation, we renew our national commitment to NASA's mission of exploration and discovery. And we continue a tradition that is as old as mankind. We look to the heavens with wonder and curiosity. More than two decades ago, one scientist followed this curiosity and dramatically changed our understanding of the universe. The year was 1995. Taxpayers were spending billions and billions of dollars on NASA's Hubble Space Telescope. The astronomer in charge had a novel idea. He wanted to use the expensive telescope in a totally unconventional way. Instead of pointing Hubble's eye, at nearby stars or distant formations, Robert Williams wanted to peer into the void. He aimed the massive telescope 
at one of the emptiest regions of the night sky. For 10 days during Christmas of 1995, Hubble stared into the abyss, seeking whatever light it could glean from the darkness. And it was total darkness. Fellow astronomers didn't know if he'd see much of anything. But Williams was rewarded, and the entire world was struck by the awesome images of our satellite return. In that tiny patch of sky, the Hubble deep field showed thousands of lights. Each brilliant spot represented not a single star, but an entire galaxy. The discovery was absolutely incredible. But the unforgettable image did not satisfy our deep hunger for knowledge. It increased ever more and even more, and reminded us how much we do not know about space, frankly, how much we do not know about life. With this week's NASA reauthorization, we continue progress on Hubble's successor, the James Webb Space Telescope. It is amazing. The Webb Telescope is set to launch next year. It will gaze back through time and space to the very first stars and the earliest galaxies in the universe. We can only imagine what incredible visions it will bring. At a time when Washington is consumed with the daily debates of our nation, I was proud that Congress came together overwhelmingly to reaffirm our nation's commitment to expanding the frontiers of knowledge. NASA's greatest discoveries teach us many, many things. One lesson is the need to view old questions with fresh eyes, to have the courage to look for answers in places we have never looked before to think in new ways because we have new information. Most of all, new discoveries remind us that in America, anything is possible if we have the courage and wisdom to learn. In the span of one lifetime, our nation went from black and white pictures of the first airplanes to beautiful images of the oldest galaxies captured by a camera in outer space. I am confident that if Americans can achieve these things, there is no problem we cannot solve. There is no challenge we cannot meet. There is no aim that is too high. Whatever it takes, and however long it will be, we are a nation of problem solvers, and the future belongs to us. We are truly a great place to be. I love America. Alyssa, you realize Australia did have a space industry back in the 50s and the 60s, and it was shut down. We could have a tremendous relationship with the USA around redeveloping our space exploration capacity. We have Cape York, we have you know, the, the uh, Woomera rocket range, and we have all sorts of different advantages here in Australia that could really play a big role in going into space, getting to Mars and so forth. Yeah, that's right. Now we've got to take a quick break and we're going to change the subject to discuss the latest terrorist attack after this. Welcome back to the CEC Report and I'll just remind our viewers that for more information on all the topics we've discussed today, you can call in and we'll send you a free copy of our weekly magazine, the Australian Alert Service. It's all covered in more detail there. Or we'll send it to you via email. Yeah, either way, hard copy or email. Now we're going to discuss Anglo-Saudi terrorist apparatus behind Westminster attack. Uh, now, this attack on the 22nd of March, where this British-born Muslim convert, Khalid Masood, ploughed into 
citizens on the Westminster Bridge and then stabbed and killed a policeman. Um, this is very revealing uh, to, the, to what we've been exposing for some time about the true authorship of international terrorism. Uh, and to us, what immediately stuck out was the fact that the British Prime Minister Theresa May preempted any debate by declaring outright that Massoud was known to MI5, but was just a peripheral figure. But it's very clear just from even a quick look at his CV that he intersects what we've exposed as the Anglo-Saudi terror apparatus that Britain's serious fraud office was investigating following 9-11 but was actually shut down by Tony Blair and we have called for that investigation to be reopened without which we're going to continue to see further terrorist attacks of such a type. Uh, so just to give you a bit of the background, this figure Masood lived in the Luton area of Bedfordshire which is a hotbed of radical Islam and he rubbed shoulders with known terrorists including a suicide bomber that committed an atrocity in Stockholm, uh, an ISIS jihadist who was killed in a drone strike in Raqqa, Syria, and he was also associated through his gym with a group that were planning a bombing which came to the attention of MI5. So he was actually quite well known to these guys, but so-called off the radar, a bit similar to the way that Manharon Monis, who conducted the Sydney siege, was so-called off the radar, and yet the ASIO had received numerous attacks in the week before he carried out what he carried out. And the other significant thing I'll say about Masood is that he worked for two stints at the General Authority of Civilian Aviation in Saudi Arabia. And the reason this is significant is that this is the body that employed Omar al-Bayoumi. He was one of the Saudi agents who assisted the 9-11 hijackers in the lead up to that terrorist attack. Uh, he was being paid by the General Authority of Civil Aviation in Saudi Arabia while he was in San Diego from 1994 until up until a month before the 9-11 attack. He wasn't working for them, but he was being paid by them to obviously do something. This is one of the uh, pieces of information that came out last year, Elisa, when the 28 pages, the yeah. 28 pages of the Congressional Joint Inquiry into the events of 9-11, uh, that, that part of the report was actually suppressed yeah. for nearly 14 years yes. and it was finally forced out in the open through political action. And it, 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 this document, those, or those pages, document the money trail between the Saudi Arabian government and the British government into the the, funneled into the 9-11 hijackers. Which was why this serious fraud investigation in Britain got shut down because the money trail came to bank accounts at the Bank of England. Yeah. Directly. And people can call in for a copy of this if they would like to see it. It's a very detailed uh, expose of the nature of what we're dealing with with this terrorism. Mm. And the other thing I'll add is that last year um, this JASTA bill, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, uh, passed the US Congress. Obama tried to veto it and was overridden. But now there are two legal filings uh, of court cases to take action against the Saudi government and mm. they now no longer face sovereign immunity. So this could have very big implications. The filings show that the Saudis were funneling at least $30 million a year into Al-Qaeda via charities run by Saudi government ministries, Craig. Yeah. So it's all there in black and white. Uh, it's and a matter it, and it of the record. back to the various uh, governments, I mean, particularly the, the British government. And know, Prince and Charles was Prince right Charles. in the middle of it. So get a copy of this and read it because we're likely to see more of these terrorist attacks here in Australia as well. Yeah, that's correct.
Yep. So thanks for tuning into the CEC report. Thanks for joining me, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. And tune in again next week. Mm -hmm.